Welcome, everyone. Uh, my name's Randy Morris, and I'm the co-president, along with my friend and colleague, Betty Joram of the C.G. Jung Society of Seattle. And on behalf of our entire board, I want to welcome you to tonight's lecture and conversation with Carolyn Baker, Ph.D., former psychotherapist and professor of psychology and history. We'll be speaking to us tonight about humanity's rite of passage in perilous times. Hard as this topic may be, it's central to the Seattle Young Society's mission to offer programs that, quote, help to liberate the soul and transform culture. But before introducing Dr. Baker, I'd like to make a few announcements about the Seattle Young Society. First, we're five months into the launch of our new website, and it continues to be a thing of beauty. However, we have had many trials in importing membership data and organizing our online library. And we're investing considerable time, money, and labor to settle all those issues. We know some of you have been frustrated with the membership renewal process. We are too. Stay tuned for an announcement about our progress and please accept our gratitude for your patience as we work out all the glitches. We're almost there. Now, many of you attended our very successful fall program on a Jungian wisdom school of the heart. This image of the Seattle Jung Society as a wisdom school grounded in the heart is consistent with our view that Jung has much guidance to offer us as we navigate these difficult times. At the Seattle Jung Society, we aim to provide a safe haven of rough weather network, a learning community with heart in which our members and guests can meet and dialogue with other concerned citizens, all of whom seek to individuate in the midst of what Jung called a civilization in transition. Tonight, Carolyn Baker will help us to gain clarity on the nature of this transition. Meanwhile, our educational programs continue to inspire. Beginning in February, we'll be offering three different wisdom school seminars, one each on alchemy, Gnosticism, and liminality. And these seminars will take place from 9 to 10.30 in the morning on four Saturdays. And each seminar offers the opportunity to work with a small group and a central text. We're indebted to board members Betty Joram and Sam Osborne, along with Jungian analyst Terry Gibson, for serving as faculty for these Wisdom School seminars. In addition, the popular Saturday in-person offering called Jung Cafe, led by our board member Akesha Barron, continues to meet, as does our Fairy Tale Fridays, with Jungian analyst Stephanie Gearman and Betty Joram. Information about all these events can be found on our website, youngseattle.org. And don't forget our in-person library at the Good Shepherd Center. Our librarian, Tamara Walker, has done a fantastic job with the help of many volunteers to create a welcoming space among a beautiful collection of books and periodicals. We hope you can come for a visit. 
And finally, next month, our guest lecture series will continue with Janine Marie Haugen speaking on Awakening Planetary Imagination and a workshop on the reanimation of the world. This seems like a perfect follow-up to the presentation we're about to hear by Carolyn Baker. So let's turn our attention to tonight's event. It's a great honor to introduce to you my mentor, colleague, and friend, Dr. Carolyn Baker. As some of you know, a pivotal moment in my life was living in the city of Hiroshima, Japan for three years in the early 1980s. It's a beautiful city, but to live into the heart of its suffering is a hard path. So meeting the work of Carolyn Baker back in 2010 through her book, Sacred Demise, Walking the Path of Industrial Civilization's Collapse, was a revelation. Here was someone walking a path similar to mine, but who had a profound sense of history in which to contextualize her thesis, and who, frankly, just knew a lot of things that I didn't. Not only that, she had the courage to tell it like it is. Namely, we are entering a stage of the collapse of civilization. I started to buy her books as they came out year after year, and I was especially impressed by a book she wrote in 2017 with Andrew Harvey called Savage Grace, Living Resiliently in the Dark Night of the Globe. And I used it in several of my classes at Antioch University, Seattle. Carolyn and Andrew have recently gathered together four books that they've co-written and published, all under the title Radical Regeneration, Sacred Activism, and the Renewal of the World. So Carolyn is a prolific author and speaker. Yes, she's a student of bad news, but she's also a warm, grounded human being who exemplifies what it means to individuate while civilization is in transition and or collapse. The title of another recent book seems to capture the essence of Carolyn Baker. She is, in the full words of the book title, undaunted, living fiercely into climate meltdown in an authoritarian world. It is truly a great honor to welcome Carolyn as a visiting faculty member in the Seattle Young Society's Wisdom School of the Heart. Carolyn, you're on. Thank you, Randy, and thank you all for being here tonight. I really appreciate your presence, and um, I'm holding some tension of opposites because on the one hand, uh, I would love to be with you in person. Um, I've been to Seattle a few times, and I love your city. Um, and I'm also glad that I'm sitting here in Boulder, Colorado on Zoom um, and didn't have to travel. And I can see all of you and hear all of you. And hopefully we can have some dialogue tonight at the end of my presentation. And also, hopefully, uh, some of you will be present tomorrow for the workshop that I'm doing. Uh, tomorrow afternoon on recovering from our addiction to hope, which uh, might, you know, stir some energy right now as you hear that title. Uh, but we'll get down into it tomorrow and uh, 
would love to see all of you there. So humanity's rite of passage. To begin, I'd like to read a poem called Rite of Passage by Sharon Olds, O-L-D-S, who's noted for her writing intensely personal and emotionally scathing poetry. So here it is, Rite of Passage. As the guests arrive at our son's party, they gather in the living room. Short men, men in first grade with smooth jaws and chins, hands in pockets. They stand around jostling, jockeying for place, small fights breaking out and calming. One says to another, how old are you? Six. I'm seven. So? They eye each other, seeing themselves tiny in the other's pupils. They clear their throats a lot, a room of small bankers. They fold their arms and frown. I could beat you up, a seven says to a six. The midnight cake, round and heavy as a turret behind them on the table. My son freckles like specks of nutmeg on his cheeks. Chest narrow as the balsa keel of a model boat. Long hands, cool and thin as the day they guided him out of me. Speaks up as a host for the sake of the group. We could easily kill a two-year-old, he says in his clear voice. The other quote-unquote men agree. They clear their throats like generals. They relax and get down to playing war, celebrating my son's life. What Olds is describing here is a kind of usual rite of passage among men that we see in Western culture, only these are really little boys. It's an initiation into war, combativeness, competition and disconnection from oneself, from the other, and from nature. And it's what Jung would have described as a failed initiation. The biologist E.O. Wilson wrote that, and this is a quote from Wilson, humanity today is like a walking dreamer caught between the fantasies of sleep and the chaos of the real world. The mind seeks but cannot find the precise place and hour. We have created a Star Wars civilization with Stone Age emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. We thrash about. We are terribly confused by the mere fact of our existence and a danger to ourselves and the rest of life. So what is actually the purpose of rites of passage and what makes them successful? Well, Mircea Eliade wrote about this distinction in his book, Rites and Symbols of Initiation. I believe that was written in 1958. And Eliade wrote, in the modern Western world, significant initiation is practically non-existence. He defines an initiation as a body of rites and oral teachings whose purpose is to produce a decisive alteration in the religious and social status of the person to be initiated. 
And that's very important. In philosophical terms, initiation is existential. The novice emerges from his ordeal endowed with a totally different, uh, endowed with a totally different being from that which he possessed before his initiation. In these societies, puberty initiation is particularly important because it is only through such rites that an adolescent will be accepted as an adult and therefore as a responsible member of that society. And I would hasten to add that females as well as males are initiated in traditional and indigenous cultures, although the two initiations may look very different. Now, unlike modern religious initiations, which are completely devoid of their original sacred meaning, initiation rites in traditional societies introduce the initiate to spiritual values, the spiritual values, particularly of the community. He or she learns the sacred myths and traditions of the tribe, the names of the gods and the history of their works. The initiate also learns about how the tribe possesses a mythical connection to these gods, a connection which was established at the beginning of time. These ceremonies introduce the initiate to a sense of the world as sacred, whereas for modern societies, our equivalent ceremonies are completely superficial, carried out for tradition's sake with no real sense of the sacred attached to the ritual. And of course, we have gang initiations and fraternity hazings, which I will talk about later as failed initiations. This is an extremely important distinction because whereas profane initiations are designed to prove one's ego in terms of courage or endurance, sacred initiations are designed to compel the initiate to connect with the self, not only for the purpose of endurance, but to make a spiritual transformation possible. So a temporary breakdown of the ego has to take place for the sacred initiation to succeed. So in terms of Eliade's definition, it's not only the teaching of the group's sacred history, which imbues the novice with a sense of the sacred. The sacred is also experienced by a series of ordeals that they have to go through. As Eliade puts it, quote, it is primarily these ordeals that constitute the religious experience of initiation, the encounter with the sacred. The ordeals are, more often than not, symbolic of one's death, followed by one's resurrection or rebirth. Initiation rites symbolize the death of the novice marking the end of childhood and the end of ignorance and the profane, as well as the rebirth of the novice marking their return to the tribe with another mode of being. And I would add, a new purpose, and a new intention. So the ritual is a symbolic death-rebirth experience. And out of this symbolic reenactment of the creation myth, 
a new individual is born. And out of that process, the community is blessed and served. So I'd like to take a moment to reflect on a myth from the Inuit people that represents a symbolic rite of passage experienced by one man and one woman. It will have been about 25 years or so since I have told this story um, without a drum. This is the first time in those years that I'm not telling Skeleton Woman, uh, which you can find in Women Who Run With the Wolves, if you're interested in actually reading it. Uh, This is the first time I've told this story without a drum. Drums don't sound very well on Zoom, so bear with me. Of course, every story has to start with Once Upon a Time. There was a young woman who did something that her father did not approve of. And mercilessly, he took her to the edge of a cliff and threw her down the edge of the cliff. And she landed on the rocks below, which were on the coast, on an ocean. And as she submerged under the waters, never to be seen, at least by her father. She was there for, we might say, a long time or a short time or whatever time it was. And nobody really missed her. Um, The truth was never told about why she was cast over the side of the cliff. But many years later, there was a fisherman in his kayak not too far from that cove. And he had a line over the edge of his kayak, and uh, he was waiting for a fish to bite. And he sat there in his kayak, and he wasn't really thinking so much about a fish biting as he was thinking about how the people in the village would feel if he brought back a huge, enormous catch. And so he's fantasizing. His ego is running wild with fantasies of the glory he would have in the village if he could bring this treasure home. And something began to tug on his line. And he began to get excited and pull up the line and pull it. And soon enough, as he pulled it up, he saw the top of a skull. And he noticed that the line was attached to the two front teeth of this skull. And suddenly he was terrified. And he thought, I have to get out of here. I don't know what I've caught. And so he starts paddling ferociously toward the shore, toward his own village. And he paddled and paddled. And according to the story, if you had been there, it would have appeared as if With the pulling on the line and his running away in the kayak, this skeleton person was beginning to stand up on the water. And it even appeared as if these bones were chasing him. 
And he kept looking back and, and, and figuring out how far he was from his village. Finally, he got to the shore and he jumped out of the kayak and he ran toward his own personal igloo. And he saw the igloo and he slid on his stomach into the door of the igloo to be safe. And finally, he caught his breath as he's sitting there against the inner wall of the igloo. And he's thinking to himself, oh, man, that was a close call. I'm so glad that that thing, whatever it was, is not chasing me. So after he catches his breath, he lights a whale oil lamp. And as the light illumines the igloo, he notices that across from him, on the other side of the igloo, is a pile of bones. And he recognizes it as the pile of bones that had been chasing him. And as he watches the oil lamp light reflect on these bones, a feeling of compassion came into him, not fear any longer, but compassion. And he got up. And he went over to the other side of the igloo and he began to untangle the bones. First the toes, then the feet, the ankles and the legs, the fingers, the hand, the arms. Until all of the bones were arranged in their proper form. And then he took a sealskin robe and he put it over the bones as if to give it warmth. Then he grew tired. And before he went to his bed, he looked again at the pile of bones. And as this feeling of compassion in him grew, a tear came into his eye. He went to sleep. And, you know, sometimes as we sleep, we dream. And sometimes as we dream, we cry. And the tears began to trickle down his face. And far over there across on the other side of the igloo, this pile of bones, and we now know was skeleton woman, looked at him. And a feeling of tenderness grew in her. And she crawled over to the bed. And she got in bed with a fisherman. And she sat on top of him. And she began to pray for flesh. And as she prayed for flesh, the story says she took his heart out of him and put it into her hands and held it very tenderly in her hands. And she began to pray for flesh. Flesh. Flesh, flesh. And suddenly the flesh began to appear on her legs, on her belly, on her feet, on her torso, on her arms and hands, on her face, and hair began to grow. And suddenly, or after a long time or a short time or whatever time it was, she was fully a woman and he awakened 
and they made love all night. And the next day they left and they were never seen again. So you can read this story if you like in Women Who Run With the Wolves. It's a very long story in that book with interpretation. Uh, comment by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. I told that story because, like the skeleton woman, we live in a global story of falling, decline, disruption, demise. The young woman is broken and shattered and in pieces as a result of being thrown off the cliff. And yet, she's able to entice the fisherman to an igloo which becomes his temple of initiation. And she evokes his compassion. And as a result of his tears, she and the fishermen in the end leave that place and are never seen again, which is to say that who they were was transformed through the initiatory experience. The people they were before were never seen again. And like skeleton woman, we too are broken. And in accepting our brokenness and our decline, we have the capacity to assist others in accepting theirs. But we don't know the outcome of our service to others. And we'll be talking about this in more detail in tomorrow's workshop on recovering from our addiction to hope. So what is our rite of passage at this time, both individually and collectively? First of all, we have to accept that we have been infantilized by industrial civilization and the need to confront the adult realities of our existence. And at the top of the list, I would place this fallacy. The delusion that we can have infinite growth on a finite planet. Because like children, we've been deluded by this fantasy. We, we, we've created a series of gargantuan crises that are all confronting us simultaneously. And E.O. Wilson's quote, which I shared earlier, describes this exquisitely. But surely we say we can solve these many problems that confront us. But before proceeding, it's essential to understand the difference between a problem and a predicament. A problem is solvable. Humans can use ingenuity, creativity, cooperation, technology to solve certain problems. However, humanity is now confronted with issues so dire and so enormous that they exceed our ability to solve them. While a problem is solvable, a predicament can only be responded to. We have a new predicament, or we have a new word for our predicament in 2023. We're calling it the polycrisis, which in a few words simply means that when crises in multiple global systems become causally entangled in ways that significantly degrade humanity's prospects. These interacting crises produce harms greater 
then the sum of those crises would produce an isolation. Were their host systems not so deeply interconnected? In other words, global crises are interconnected, intertwining, and all worsening one another. We seem to be in a constant state of catastrophe, and that word is exceedingly important, and we'll return to it in a while. But it seems to me that at this juncture, our predict, at this juncture of our predicament, we have three options. We can simply ignore our predicament as though, you know, it didn't happen and attempt to proceed with our lives anyway, as millions of people do. Secondly, we can sink into total despair and medicate ourselves in various ways, consider taking our own lives or, in fact, take them. And again, as millions of people do. Or three, we can explore and live into our predicament as a sacred rite of passage. In the traditional rite of passage, young people are prepared from birth. And that's important. Prepared from birth to participate in a rite of passage near the age of puberty, which would mark their transition from childhood to adulthood. It's very important to understand that the rite of passage was not a surprise to the initiate. And even though it didn't take away the angst inherent in the initiation. The initiation was not a huge bewilderment that came out of left field and blindsided the young person. The rite of passage involved and involves an ordeal. And this may be physical, intellectual, and psycho-spiritual, and is designed to result in emotional and spiritual transformation. In traditional cultures that practiced rites of passage, the ceremony was often followed by a celebration and and welcoming from the community. Generally speaking, and this is very general, but I want to just state it in this way. The rite of passage has three stages. Generally, a vision of possibility that the child has from birth through childhood as they are prepared for this rite of passage by their parents, by their extended family, and tribal elders. A key aspect of the preparation is understanding why they need the rite, how they're going to rise to the challenge, and what the initiation can help them accomplish in life, and what the the initiation can help them accomplish for the community. The second stage is the ordeal, which is a set of physical or emotional challenges the young person has to engage in. The ordeal is usually highly stressful emotionally and physically. And one reason that years of preparation for the rite of passage is so important is that the initiate will understand that he or she is not being punished. They're not being judged. They're experiencing the ordeal as a test. 
And finally, the third stage, the homecoming and celebration, which acknowledges and supports the young person's new place in the community. This is a festival of gratitude to the initiates from the tribe. It's as if to say, what you've done, you've done not only for yourself, but for all of us. Now, at the age of 15, Jung had his first communion, and he wrote that he fully expected it to be a dazzling rite of passage that would be life-altering. But it was a huge disappointment for him. And later, as Jung visited and studied rites of passages in various tribes throughout the world, he named initiation as an archetype that we are wired to need and desire. He also realized that Western cultures had almost no formal rites of passage, but he realized that because initiation is an archetype, a culture that doesn't have these rites of passage carries a deep wound as a result of not having them. And also that while we do not have formal rites of passage, we do have symbolic initiations incessantly in our human experience. For example, the loss of a loved one, a divorce, the loss of a job, a terminal diagnosis, a catastrophic accident, a natural disaster. All of these are examples of initiatory experiences. I'm currently working on a new book, which is entitled Apocalypse Anytime, Meditations and Practices for Joy and Courage in a Time of Loss. And by Apocalypse Anytime, I mean the rites of passage that confront us globally, but also the ones that occur in our daily lives. I don't wish to minimize the rite of passage, but sometimes we have many symbolic initiations in one day. Perhaps you had one in uh, in getting here this evening. And certainly our planet is currently in the throes of a massive collective rite of passage. But whether on the macrocosm or the microcosm, it's important to understand the dynamics of the rite of passage in any form in order to make sense of our individual and collective experiences. So back to the tribal initiation and some key points to notice. First, as I mentioned, the young person is prepared from birth. A child may have heard about it in some way every day or his of every day of his or her life from birth. I know that um Maladoma Somme explains initiation um as something that the child is constantly hearing about from someone in the village. And that's why it's no surprise. Um, They are not always told in detail every single time what's going to happen. But it's kind of like, you know, when the initiation comes, yeah, I've heard about that, you know. Um, I'm sure it's going to be rough, but um, I, I, I know, I know about this. So he or she generally knows what to expect. 
but they have no idea of how challenging it's going to be. And the rite of passage is dangerous and potentially life-threatening. In some rare instances, the young person does not survive. But here's the interesting thing. The community is willing to take that risk because they understand how dangerous to the community an uninitiated person is. One thing Jung said about initiation is this. Although our culture no longer provides rights of initiation, there persists in all of us, regardless of gender, an archetypal need to be initiated. We can deduce this from the dreams of patients in analysis, which become rich in initiatory symbolism at critical periods of their lives. For example, at puberty, betrothal, marriage, childbirth, at divorce or separation, at the death of a parent or spouse. Attainment of a new stage of life seems to demand that symbols of initiation must be experienced. If society fails to provide them, then the self compensates for this deficiency by producing them in dreams. Follow your dreams. Perhaps you've heard the African proverb, the child who is not embraced by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth. Embraced doesn't mean hugged and kissed and told that he or she is uniquely special. Embraced means initiated. The elders know that if a child is not initiated, he will find a way to create a false and failed initiation for himself because he's wired for initiation. And like you, I suppose, I can't help but notice the number of mass shootings that are committed by young men around the age of 18, often assisted by parents who think they are doing something wonderful for the young man by giving him a gun. While, as Jung said, the self may compensate for not having been initiated through our dreams, that doesn't prevent perilous outcomes to a culture and to a person as a result of lack of initiation. We must also notice that failed initiations, as I mentioned a while ago, happen all the time. Michael Mead speaks of failed initiations as those that happen at the wrong time, conducted by the wrong people, for all the wrong reasons, with consequences that are profoundly wounding to the soul, the body, and the community. Sexual abuse is a failed initiation. A shooting rampage is a failed initiation. Starting a war, invading a country, the list is very long. And let's notice that the young initiate is taken into the wilderness. Usually the young men with the male elders and the young women with female elders. 
It's important to notice that rites of passages don't happen in houses or huts for the most part. They happen in nature because of the intimacy native people cherish with nature. And in nature, the young person is instructed to go through the ordeal, which they are given little instruction for. But we cannot overstate the importance of the ordeal. These are physical or emotional challenges that the young person must take on and rise to. And also, for the most part, the young person is alone. Elders may be nearby. They they sometimes bring food or water, but they don't come to the rescue. They don't seek to minimize the suffering that the ordeal involves. Because the real significance of the ordeal lives in the pain that the young person must endure. Often the pain is much more psychological than physical and feels unbearable. What it does is compel the young person to reach down inside himself or herself and find emotional and spiritual resources that they didn't know they had. In Jungian terms, the young person, the young person is compelled to connect deeply with the self in the midst of a kind of ego death. At the end of the ordeal, there may be conversations with the elder about the ordeal and what the young person learned or what the elder observed in them. There's usually a lot of time for processing the initiatory experience before returning to the village. And then at some point, the young initiates and the elders return to the village for a feast, a celebration of the young people who've been initiated and now are ready to take their place as leaders in the community. Since birth and through the initiation, the elders have been observing the gifts that they see that the young people have brought with them from the other world. And these gifts are usually discussed before or during the initiation so that the young person isn't on their own in figuring out their place in the community. So, what does all of this have to do with us living in 2023 as we are experiencing the collapse of industrial civilization and the poly crisis? I'm asserting that all of that, all of that is our rite of passage. And unlike the indigenous youth, we've not been prepared for it from birth. We are very probably not initiated elders. The only rituals we have, we learned ourselves and not at the feet of our elders. Those of us who are non-Indigenous people are lost on many levels because we don't have our own traditions. And that's why we tend to borrow them from Indigenous people, which often results in conflict and acts of cultural appropriation because we revere and long for similar traditions. How could we not? So how do we navigate the rite of passage that humanity and this planet is experiencing? 
Like any traditional initiation, we're going through an ordeal for which we need profound emotional and spiritual resources to endure. We need as many allies who understand this process that we can join with as possible. We need to become elders ourselves for our communities. And of course, an elder is very different from an older. Age is not the criteria for being an elder. I know many young people who are wise beyond their years, and I consider them elders as well, because it's about wisdom, not age. Fortunately, Jung has given us profound and powerful guidance on the archetype of initiation, which can further support us as we experience this planetary rite of passage. In fact, the entire process of Jungian analysis is an individual initiation, an individuation. Yulan Jacobi, a first-generation follower of Jung, attempted to enumerate the various aspects of the individuation process in an even more differentiated way. She talks about individuation as a natural process, which is the ordinary course of human life, in addition to the methodically or analytically assisted process worked out by Jung. She says, individuation can take the form of a process experienced as an individual way, analysis, creative writing or painting, or as an initiation resulting from participation in a collective event, military service, religious rituals, vision quest. It can also be the result of a gradual development consisting of many little transformations or a sudden transformation brought about by a shattering or mystical experience. She cites St. Paul's blinding on the Damascus Road or Jacob Bohm's seeing a vision of God in a bowl of soup. It can be experienced as a continuous development extending extending over a whole lifespan or a cyclic process constantly recurring in unchanged form. It can be a process in which only the first phase is accomplished preceding midlife or a process in which both phases follow in sequence. And finally, the path of individuation can be prematurely interrupted by outer or inner circumstances, or it can remain undeveloped or atrophied in form. I'd like to close my remarks by bringing our attention back to that word catastrophe, as I promised I would. Stephen Jenkinson, a former hospice worker and author of the book Die Wise, offers a beautiful commentary on the word catastrophe. He divides the Greek word into two syllables and notes that kata, the first syllable, was a a word meaning descent or going downward toward the underworld. Strophe was a word associated with braiding or interconnection. 
if we apply the original meaning of kata and strophe to our current predicament, it reveals that a descent is occurring, but we are not making it alone in isolation. We are woven together in a kind of collective rope ladder and deeply connected in going downward. None of us is uniquely special in our descent. We are all engulfed in it, and none of us is alone. Jenkinson also says, we are born into a dangerous time. Consider that an affliction or consider it an assignment. We're all in a descent and we all need each other as we make the descent. And I'm suggesting that we accept the fact that we're collectively descending and take in the painful manifestations of that descent. And that as we do so, we take on the assignments that this descent demands of us, knowing that we're not alone and that we are woven together in catastrophe. This is our collective rite of passage. This is how we become mature adult men and women and then take our place of service and healing in the human tribe. In tomorrow afternoon's workshop on recovering from addiction to hope, we'll explore this territory more deeply. And I want to leave us with this poem by my friend Larry Robinson in Sebastopol, California. It's called falling. In these off-field days of fire and flood and plague, we watch and wait and wonder. We wonder when that fierce hand might reach at last for us. Those of us not yet touched by calamity quake, knowing in our bones that though we may be spared, this time, time will level us all. No magic amulets, no prayers, no masks. Good deeds or good looks can promise protection from our terminal human condition. And those who have watched a child swept forever from our arms or fled the flames that swallowed our hopes and our memories or hid the bombs or the virus or the predator's gaze know that nothing now will ever be the same as if anything ever were. For all of us are falling, like ashes, like rain, like petals, like leaves. But we are all falling together. And if we knew in truth there was nowhere to land, tell me, could we know the difference between falling and flying? Thank you for your attention. Okay. Yes. Thank you, Carolyn, so much. There's so much to think about there. 